Song number 89, we were asked to mark that, and we certainly are happy to do that, and we're certainly thankful, as was mentioned earlier, that all of us have been permitted the privilege, and yea, the high honor of assembling today, this morning, even as we are. In Psalm 29, verse number 2, there it does say, Give unto the Lord the glory due unto His name. And so, as we have gathered this morning, we do desire to worship in spirit and in truth, and to do so, of course, in a way that's pleasing and acceptable before the eyes of our Heavenly Father. You may have noted that the title of the lesson is Jesus and Jonah. And so for the next few moments, we'll give some thought to that text that was just read in our hearing a moment ago from the 11th chapter of the Gospel according to Luke. In just a moment, as we revisit that passage, we will have an interest to look at what it was that the Lord taught and what it was that is so very profound and meaningful for you and me even to this day. Some introductory thoughts, though, might well be these. The Old Testament, described in Romans 15, 4 in wording like this, that whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. As you and I then turn our attention to the Old Testament Scriptures, those 39 books from Genesis to Malachi, and we give some appreciation to the marvelous wonder that so often is found therein. We do encounter on so many occasions individuals who walked upon this earth and in some way or other they had a parallel to Jesus. Not to say that they were sinless, not to say that they certainly were perfect as He was, but some element about them can teach us so much about what Jesus came to share with us. For instance, we notice about Adam. There he was, the first man, and yet in Romans, the fifth chapter, Paul, in fact, calls you and me to realize that in the same way that Adam, that first man, brought sin, Jesus, the second Adam, brought life. And thus, that parallel deepens and enriches your thinking and mine. We also might remember Abraham, also on that list. Or I didn't write him, I'm sorry, but Abraham, I intended to. As Abraham was one called the friend of God, and yet he offered his own son or was on the verge of doing so in Genesis 22, Moses, that great individual who was such a spokesman for God's people, and yet we notice he himself in Deuteronomy 18 said that he would be likened unto one who would be the great prophet from God. Peter quoted that and applied it to Jesus in Acts chapter 3. That list could be extended so many times over. Even in Haggai, we find Zerubbabel highlighted in that same way in verses 21 and following of Haggai 2. I say all of that to say this. Many times those characters enrich in our mind and in our heart a thinking that makes us wonder so much about the details of Christ. Today, why don't we think about another one that stirs our thinking. The one is Jonah. As we turn this slide over to the next one, giving some thought for a moment to that character you and I recognize as Jonah, would you again read with me the wording of Luke chapter 11, that lesson text that we heard just a moment ago. Verses 29 and 30, Jesus speaking, saying, And when the people were gathered thick together, He began to say, This is an evil generation, they seek a sign, and there shall no sign be given it, but the sign of Jonas the prophet. For as Jonas was a sign unto the Ninevites, so shall also the Son of Man be to this generation. And as the Lord on that occasion made a very powerful statement to them, 
He made reference to some characteristics of that generation, but then he spoke about the sign of Jonah. Let's first think about the generation of which the Lord spoke. Some of the characteristics found in this passage and others. As we do so, maybe it'll be a good opportunity to revisit the way the book of Jonah begins. In fact, that book begins without any delay as God came into Jonah and said, Jonah, go unto Nineveh and cry against the city because the wickedness has come up before me. That's in the first two verses of Jonah chapter 1. And on that occasion, as God made reference to the wickedness of Nineveh, Nineveh was a great city in the ancient era, the capital of the Assyrian Empire. Its greatness was known far and wide, and yet they were nonetheless wicked. It may well be that that prompts us to consider this. The Ninevites, as you and I would label them, were in fact not Israelites. They were heathens, pagans, Gentiles, if you please. And yet they nonetheless were guilty of wickedness. There was a law even to which they were supposed to subscribe. There was a law of God that He expected them by the character of the patriarchal era to nonetheless live by a code of conduct. And the Ninevites had forsaken it. They were living in ways that were despicable. Living in ways that brought in fact in this time the promise of God's wrath if change was not in order. Isn't it interesting in light of that passage? We notice in Jonah 3 verse 4, two chapters later, that another statement about the greatness of this city is found, and yet they did hearken and respond to Jonah's preaching. He had plainly said, Forty days and the city shall be overthrown. And immediately they seemed to respond with penitence, with a heart of desire, interested to nonetheless change their way and come back into the Lord. For those reasons, maybe that causes us to think about the generation of Jesus. What was it the Lord said in Luke eleven twenty nine? This is an evil generation. The generation before whom the Lord was standing, the crowd of people characteristic of that group before whom the Lord was preaching, He said they were an evil generation. In Matthew's version of this, we find the Lord said this is an adulterous and evil generation. That does prompt us to think with interest. Here were two nationalities of people. The Ninevites on the one hand, God said they were wicked. The generation of which the Lord was a part and Jesus said they were evil. But yet they seem so different. Jonah's generation, these Ninevites, they were known for their violence. They were known for their cruelty. They were known for their inhumanity one toward another. They were known for the absolute disrespect they had for life and anything that went with it. Perhaps you and I would then agree that, well, they were then certainly wicked and the wrath of God was deserving on them. But yet, what about Jesus' generation? This city of Capernaum around which the Lord was preaching in this northern part of Palestine. Adulterous and evil, Jesus said. And yet, as far as history tells us, many of the things of which they were guilty were not nearly categorized like those of the ancient people of Nineveh. These kind of people were indifferent. These kind of people were apathetic. These kind of people seemed not to care. And yet, they still were evil. Maybe there's a great lesson in that for each of us. Appreciative of the fact that 
It does not take murder to make one displeasing before God. It doesn't take sins that might be high on a noteworthy list. All it takes is any disobedience, doesn't it? Isn't it true in light of this passage? What does that say about Romans 6.23? The wages of sin is death. That which is the necessary consequence. It does bring about death, doesn't it? Spiritual distancing from God. A separation from the one who made and loves us. And you'll notice Paul said it's the wages of sin. He didn't say any particular sin. It's sin whatever form or character it takes. Isn't it significant then that as Jesus referred to this era of which He was living, and He called it an evil generation, what about the generation of which you and I are a part? Is it still a tendency on the part of man to be wicked? Is it still that which is characteristic to be evil as God would define it? I realize many in our world would not define the current generation as evil. Many would say that this generation is the most civilized, the highest, the most evolved of any generation that has ever walked the planet. But yet, what about some of the characteristics of human behavior? Some of the things we see put before our faces on a daily basis, be it activities on the newspaper, the news, news sources, or otherwise. Jesus made some statements about that generation that ought to make us think about our own. In Matthew 6, verses 33 and 34, Jesus again said, But seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Take no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. Our blessed Savior spoke about the morrow that which would be at any point apparently in the future era of the time He spoke, and He said that sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. You and I still live in the midst of so much evil, so much that gives so little thought to the Word of God. Activities, language, ways of thinking. There is a specific word that is so often used, at least in the circles of Tennessee Tech and otherwise. They talk about the worldview. That particular set of beliefs that guide and superintend the way that a person approaches nearly everything in life. If the worldview of a person is carnal or material, then it necessarily will lead to a carnal and material life. But if a worldview is dictated by the presentation of the Master, Jesus Himself, then that worldview will tend to lead one to a life that is so different than being full of evil. No wonder you'll see at the bottom of that slide. Paul listed in Romans chapter 1, verses 20 through 32, a lengthy list of activities that were characteristic of that day and time. We won't list all of them. We won't even read those verses, but you remember what many of them were. They worship and serve the creature more than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Romans 1, 25. They were guilty of homosexuality. Romans 1, verses 26, 27, and 28. They were guilty of, in fact, disobedience to parents, murder, envies, blasphemies, implacable characteristics. I wonder, do we encounter any of that today? Do we see it espoused in any of the lives that you and I are faced with? Certainly we do. It sounds a great deal like Jeremiah 7, verses 28 and 29, doesn't it? This is a nation that obeyeth not God. 
And for that reason, we remember the ancient people of Judah felt the wrath of God and the breath of His heat falling upon them as they were carried off into captivity for 70 long years of sorrowful and sickening life. Maybe in light of that, it prompts us again to think about what the Lord said. You'll notice at the top of this slide, we each are admonished through the writer Paul in Ephesians chapter 6 that we should be desirous of having done all to stand. The wording is impressive in the sense that it makes us recognize that daily we're involved in warfare because this generation is evil and Satan is in control of so much that goes on about us. He is the God of this world, to borrow the language of 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 and 4. He is the prince of the power of the hour, to quote Ephesians 2, verse 2. He is the great force Jesus addressed and identified in John 8, verse 44. He is the one that was a sinner from the beginning, and every sin emanates in one way or another through His activity. No wonder we can appreciate the way that that story of Jonah rolls forward. All we did a moment ago was begin the book. God told Jonah to go to Nineveh and cry against that city, for its wickedness has come up against me. And the very next verse, Jonah 1, verse number 3. Jonah went to the seaport, the city known as Joppa, and boarded a ship bound for Tarshish. If you and I could look at a map of the ancient world, Tarshish was as far from Nineveh as Jonah could get. It was as far in the direction westward that Jonah could imagine traveling. It was at the opposite end of the Mediterranean Sea. And yet Nineveh was the direction eastward from where he was. Jonah purposefully disobeyed God. He purposefully went just the opposite direction. We do remember as chapter 1 continues that Jonah, of course, ultimately was thrown overboard as the mariners appreciated the storm and the difficulty and danger that it brought. Ultimately, he was swallowed by a great fish. And for three days, of course, he dwelt in the belly of that fish. We find a man of prayer during that period of time. In fact, many of the words of Jonah chapter 2 then make us recognize he had come to his senses. He was now a man desirous of evangelism. He was a man desirous of appreciating the God whom he had ignored before. And so when the fish vomited him out on the dry land, then God came to him one more time and said, Jonah, go to Nineveh and cry against it. You preach the preaching that I bid thee to preach, Jonah 3 verse 2. And sure enough, two verses later, off to Nineveh he went. And this time the people, much to his chagrin I might add, but nonetheless they responded to his preaching, they repented of their errors from the king all the way into the lowest of the society. As Jonah chapter 3 closes, we find Jonah in a very unusual circumstance. You would think a prophet would rejoice if people responded to the Lord. You would think a prophet would be happy, but Jonah wasn't. Jonah was overcome with selfishness. Overcome, you see, with a characteristic of his own lot. These people were his political enemies. These Ninevites were the very enemies of Israel and God was sparing them and He was saving them because they repented and Jonah was unhappy about it. Can you imagine a prophet of God unhappy that people are being saved? Unhappy that people are responding in penitence? And yet that's the sad saga of Jonah. As you'll notice in chapter number 4, a number of other things God brings. 
He brought the storm in chapter 1 with a great wind. He brought the great fish as well to swallow Jonah. In chapter number 4, he also brought, you notice, a vine tree, a gourd tree if you please. And he also brought a worm that ultimately ate it or caused it to be destroyed. God brought all of that to help teach Jonah a lesson. As the record ends, it does remind us, all of that challenges us to think about what Jesus said next. Off to this next slide we go. As Jesus identified the evilness of that generation, in Luke eleven twenty nine, 29, He said, This is an evil generation. They seek a sign. They seek a sign. S-I-G-N. We each are thankful quite often for signs. You're driving along the roadway. Maybe you don't exactly know the place to which you're going. You know roughly where it is, and so you look for a sign. The sign for the building, the sign for the business, the sign for the place to which you're looking. Jesus said this generation of which He was addressing, they were evil. They sought a sign. In 1 Corinthians 1 verse 22, on that occasion Paul said that the Greeks seek after wisdom, the Jews seek after a sign. They were so often desirous, show us a sign that we may believe thee. They wanted a sign from Jesus to prove that He was who He said He was. They wanted a sign that provided incontrovertible evidence that they, that rather He was the one from God. Isn't it interesting? As they sought a sign, it brings us to recognize this. Jesus had worked many miracles prior to that time and God had worked many signs in the Old Testament, hadn't He? Everything from the creation of chapter 1 of Genesis... The parting of the Red Sea in Exodus 13 and 14. Characteristics associated with any number of realities. But yet on this occasion, Jesus said, There shall no sign be given it but the sign of the prophet Jonah. And on this occasion, we notice that Jesus makes reference in their mind and in ours to that man who had lived so many centuries before, that man known as Jonah, something about him offered evidence for a sign that Jesus said was going to be the only sign that generation would receive. That sign brings us to these observations today. We still live in an era and in a time when there are many who seek for signs. It may be you've had conversation with individuals who believe that if you're a saint... If you're a Christian, if you are saved, then you will be endowed with the opportunity and with the ability of signs. I know many years ago, even in North Carolina, individuals there with whom I was aware spoke about speaking in tongues. And they would frankly say, this is the proof that I am saved. I'm able to speak in tongues. And if a person didn't have that ability, they call salvation into question. These individuals looked for an external sign. There still are many, even in this part of the world, who have their mindset towards seeking a sign. Thus, they make mention of experiences. What can you offer as an experience that would give proof or evidence that you've been saved? There are a number of religious organizations that call that into question and say, what is the witness you can offer? that God has worked in you to the point that you, of course, are now in a safe condition. A sign. No wonder as you give thought to those signs, may we pause at least to observe this. 
those miracles of which we noted earlier, the raising of the dead by Jesus or the parting of the Red Sea or even some of the other activities noted on throughout the pages of the book of God, the age of those miracles has now passed. We don't live in an age in which individuals have this ability to speak in tongues like the apostles did in Acts the second chapter. Those tongues were languages, foreign languages, of which the individuals were endowed with the ability by God to speak those languages despite the fact they had not learned them, despite the fact they had not grown up where those languages were spoken. Those were not gibberish kind of utterances from the mouth. They really were languages, and there were those present on Pentecost that could understand them. But today, that speaking in tongues as well as other miracles, Paul addressed those matters in 1 Corinthians chapters 12 through 14. As we close the 12th chapter of 1 Corinthians, Paul on that occasion said, I show unto you a more excellent way. He had just highlighted the beauty and the prestige of various miracles miraculous capabilities. He had listed, in fact, nine of them near the outset of that chapter. And in his description of them, he now reaches the point, there is something better and more perfect than these. And that gives way to the first verse of the next chapter. And so throughout chapter 13, we find a description of agape, a description of love that was to be the guiding and manifold matter. Paul did say in verses 8 and following of chapter 13, that when I was a child, I spake as a child, I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things, referring to the imperfection and impurity attached to those spiritual gifts. Where there be prophecies, they shall fail. Where there be tongues, they shall cease. Those were the words of inspiration. The time was coming when all of that would pass away. You and I realize that there thus are no capabilities for individuals to perform those kinds of miracles today. Those days are long gone. You and I can appreciate that the purpose of miracles was satisfied. Isn't it true? Jesus identified in Mark 16, verses 17 to 20, what the purpose of miracles was. It was a purpose that related to the confirmation of the Word so that those who, prior to the days of completion of the inspired text, they could then appreciate that in those individuals there was proper authentication, proper authority. Later on in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, the same thing is stated yet again. When those miracles, or rather when the Word was confirmed, when its perfection was completed, there was no longer the need for the miracles. Some have made the analogy it's much like a building. When a construction crew is building a building, use is made of scaffolding. Use is made of that which can help them to construct the building. But you see, once the building is finished, the scaffolding is removed. And so it was with the miracles, wasn't it? They provided a scaffolding, authentication, proof, if you please, about the inspired nature of those who are preaching and the inspired nature of their message. But once the perfect word was finished, there was no longer the need for authentication in a man. No wonder Paul could say then in verses 9 and 10 of 1 Corinthians 13, When that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. You and I have in our possession that which is perfect. The inspired, infallible, authoritative word of God. Didn't Paul say, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God 
is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. That completeness then leads us to the last statement on that slide. As the Lord made reference to the sign, He said there's only one sign going to be given, the sign of the prophet Jonah. What is it then that's under consideration in that nature of a sign? It might be well to observe. Humans still have quite an interest in signs, as we noted earlier. But have you ever noticed that by and large, humans have a tremendous capability of explaining signs away? In fact, on one occasion, you may recall Jesus taught a parable. It was that parable set before us in Luke 16, verses 19 to 31. In that parable was a rich man, and there was a gentleman named Lazarus. You recall how ultimately it, it, it ended. This man, this rich man, found himself in torment. And you recall he pleaded with Father Abraham to send back, to send back somebody that they might tell his brother so that they wouldn't come there. On that occasion, what was that unforgettable statement that was made? They've got Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. He said, nay, but if one went back from the dead, they'd believe him. Then the inspired writer has these words. If they won't believe the written word, they won't believe even if one were to rise from the dead. Isn't it true that we can, as humans can explain almost anything away? We can rationalize it, justify it, excuse it, put it behind us. We can offer some legitimate explanation, at least in our mind. Even if one rose from the dead, Jesus said they won't believe that if they won't believe this word. We walk by faith and not by sight. 2 Corinthians 5, 7. When you and I then think about signs, isn't it fascinating? Jesus said one sign is the one that will be given. What is this sign of Jonah? Jesus stated that this would be the only sign provided. Although they were so interested in more signs, another sign, some specific matter, the only one provided was this sign of Jonah. Thankfully, we have before us this passage as well as Matthew's accounting. And as we look at the two of them together, we can reach a beautiful conclusion. We remember that Jonah, Jesus himself said, was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish. So too shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And there we have that sign identified. Jonah found himself sustained by the power of God three days and three nights in the depths of the sea, a place that you and I find it hard to imagine. Alive he was at the depths of the sea. He wasn't drowned. His life didn't go out of him. He was sustained, vomited out on land, in fact, even prayed from the belly of that fish. Jesus said in that same way, the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. As you and I think about that statement, three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, we might then notice what it was that transpired in the life of our Savior. The time would come He, of course, would be nailed on a cross. The time would come that He Himself would say, It is finished. John 19, verse 30. The time would come, John 19, 34, a Roman soldier would pierce his side, confirming that he was dead. But yet, we notice in the very next chapter, as the women came, 
on that Sunday morning to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away and we also learned so beautifully that those angelic visitors said, He is not here, He is risen. Matthew 28, 6. In fact, we sang a song earlier this morning. Up from the grave He arose. That particular statement reminds us, here was one then the master himself who he too, like Jonah, had been three days and three nights in a specific location. It wasn't in the heart of a fish. It was in the heart of the earth. That was to be an overwhelming, convincing proof. The sign that was to be enough to convince those of that day, and yea, all generations since. The resurrection really happened. There are many religions around this world who have various and sundry leaders, and in fact, often individuals looked up to very highly, especially in foreign eastern countries. And yet, isn't it still a fascinating matter that the place where their body is buried is still there and it's known, it's identified, the body is still there. It may well have decayed over the years, but the tomb hasn't been interrupted. And yet you and I worship a risen Lord. We worship one who in fact three days and three nights and then up from the grave he arose. And isn't it now true? Romans 12, or rather Hebrews 12 verses 1 and 2 says it like this. In powerful language and in remarkable character. Wherefore we were compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. Let us lay aside every weight in the sin which just so easily beset us. And let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross despising its shame. And is set down at the right hand of God. You'll notice in that passage, even in the same sentence, reference is made to His death and then to His resurrection and now to His coronation in glory. We serve a risen Master. The sign of Jonah was to be an indelible fact for them. In those days to come when Jesus died and then when He arose and the evidence for that was shared... Is it any wonder that in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul could list and say... Peter saw him, James saw him, a number of others saw him. In fact, 500 brethren at once saw him. There was ample proof of the Lord's resurrection. It wasn't a fable, it wasn't a myth. That was the sign that was to convince them this was who that he said he was. He was the anointed one. He was the Messiah. He was the Son of God. It is for those reasons we come near the bottom of that slide and note this. Jesus said... No other signs would be given. All humanity who still seeks for a sign, all humanity who has their intent for one, and frankly there are many, they think something to do with the nation of Israel is a sign. Something to do with Russia and warfare with China or Israel is a sign. It isn't. The Lord said there shall be no sign. And all of those things that attach prior to or following that matter of the sign of Jonah... The fact of the Lord staying three days and three nights was to be proof for you and me about the fact He was who He said He was. I believe you and I can even further appreciate in light of that why some of those Jews said what they said. You might recall that they instructed Pilate, make it sure because this one said that He would rise again. They knew what Jesus had said. And sure enough, when that third day arose and the tomb was empty, it should have in fact filled their heart with excitement, with joy, and also with conviction as to what they had failed to believe. 
today, then where do you and I stand as we contemplate the sign of Jonah? Three days and three nights he was in the belly of the great fish. The Lord spent his three days and nights in the heart of earth just as he prophesied he would. And now he reigns in coronation and glory. Peter said that on the day of Pentecost. Not only did he die, not only was he buried, not only was he resurrected, but he now reigns over spiritual Israel. He's King of kings and Lord of lords. To borrow Revelation 19, verses 16 and 17. Have you bowed in submission to the king? The sign of Jonah is not going to be repeated. There was only one sign given. In summary, in conclusion, we've seen really but three things in that brief text set before us. But let us use that last observation to close the lesson in this, in this way. In verse number 30, Jesus said, For as Jonah was a sign unto the Ninevites, so also shall the Son of Man be to this generation. When Jonah came to Nineveh, you can imagine, he began to preach. And they began to hear, and they began to respond, and they began to, with excitement, repent of that of which they were guilty. Jesus said, in the same way that Jonah was assigned to the Ninevites, the Son of Man, speaking of Himself, was to be assigned to that generation. Jesus, too, came preaching. He preached the greatness of Himself, the nature of the coming kingdom. Sadly, not nearly as many responded as we might have liked and as we might have wished. In fact, they often turned their back upon Him. They tried to kill Him more than once. They disbelieved what He had to say. They ran Him out of town on a few occasions. But yet He was the sign that they should not have avoided. Today, what about you and what about me? Jesus is that sign to our generation too in the sense that He has the only message of salvation. Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Acts 4 verse 12. Have you then given your life and have I given mine to the one who was that Jonah for your day and mine? Jesus the Messiah. May we never forget that just as Jonah was a real figure and just as he spent those three days, so too Jesus. It is sad that there are some who think that Jesus too wasn't real. They think He was a fable. They think He was a character, an imposter. There are some who think that He, in fact, never really died. You may have encountered individuals who think He just fainted on the cross and really He didn't die. What nonsense. Our Lord did die, just as the Scriptures, both old and new, said that He would, and in fact, He was resurrected to life. Today, the sign of Jonah stands before all of us still as a continuing sign of the fact He was the one and this is the only sign that will ever be given. May we believe it fully, base our life upon it completely, and live our life in harmony to it. We're told in Titus 2 verses 11 and 12, "...the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world." Are you and I living soberly, righteously, and godly? If today things are amiss in your life, maybe you've never yet responded in convincing nature to the sign of Jonah, knowing that Jesus was the Messiah that died for you. The plan of salvation demands that you believe Him. Believe Him to be the Son of God. Repent of your sins. Confess His name as the Messiah and be baptized. The baptistry behind me is ready. We'd be honored, in fact excited, 
to assist you today in your obedience to the gospel. If you have become a member of the body of Christ and you have tasted all the goodness that goes with it, to borrow the language of Hebrews 6, verses 4 through 6, but you have allowed that taste to in fact spew forth from your mouth and now you don't live as you once did. You live in a way that is rather disgraceful, at least in the eyes of God. You've lived in a way that has not shown others the love of God. You've lived a life of open and known sin. Why not put that behind you today? There could be no better day than this one. Come before brethren. If it's a sin known publicly, confess it, repent of it, pray to God for forgiveness, and we'd be happy to pray on your behalf this very day. If the sign of Jonah then is something to which you need to respond in perfect obedience today, why don't you do it? And do it at once while together we stand and while we sing.